Hey church, welcome to episode two of our brand new series in the book of Ecclesiastes entitled Under the Sun. If you have a Bible at home, I want to encourage you to open the Bible uh, to turn to chapter two. We'll be in chapter two and chapter three today. And you can always follow on the screen as well as the passages will be listed here so you could read along. But I think it's really helpful when you have the Bible in front of you and you can take notes uh, and you can kind of journey with us through what the Koheleth, what the preacher is going to lead us through today, which is the quest for pleasure. He's going to speak about how he sought pleasure in all of these different places in life and how he found them to be vapors, fleeting. It's encapsulated really in verse 11 that I want to read at the very beginning in chapter 2, which says this. I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. And a striving after the wind, there was nothing to be gained under the sun. So we're going to journey through this together. Uh, this, this pursuit that we all go after, which is the pursuit of pleasure, both permanent pleasure and also pleasure now in the moment. So one of the things that actually happened to me over the course of the past year is I got into a brand new show. And this show is called The Pond Guy. It's on YouTube. It's like a 15-minute show. And it's essentially about a guy that is contracted to build these elaborate ponds in people's yards. I mean, a pond is really not a great description. Oftentimes what he builds is like a lake with waterfalls and fish and fire pits. And I love it. It captured my imagination. And it followed a, vo a very familiar script to similar shows, makeover, home makeover shows, fixer-upper shows, where you, you kind of see the time lapse of moving from nothing and then building something at the very end. And there's a great big reveal where you get to see the finished product. And there's something just attractive about seeing something be created out of nothing and seeing the big reveal at the very end and seeing something maybe redone and fixed. It's why those shows are constantly a hit. And I was actually watching a show where they did uh, Shaquille O'Neal, uh, a pond for his yard. And I imagined myself sitting there by the pond in these beautiful chairs with the fire pit, listening to the waterfall and the, the fish and thinking, man, that would be so pleasurable. I would love to have that. Maybe you felt the same when you've watched a show of a similar nature, fixing up a home or building a tree house or building a pond or a pool in the backyard. And, and I think oftentimes we live our lives like this. We live our lives for the great big reveal. That's what those shows are all about. The big reveal at the end where you see all the intricacies and you see it was all worth it, all the money, all the time. 
And we live our lives saying, I hope all the hard decisions, all the sacrifices, all the struggles I endure will be worth it for the great big reveal in my career, in my relationships, in romance, for my kids, in my retirement, that the great big reveal will make everything worth it. So we strive and we toil. But what happens on those shows is that in the middle portion, it's true of the pond guy and home makeover edition, any show similar, that in the middle portion, there's the drama. And it typically goes like this. The person who hires the contractor to build the pond or make over the home, they can't wait. They get impatient. And so they start to kind of walk around and fiddle with everything and test everything out. They sit in the chairs, they look at the finishes, and they decide they don't like certain things. So they change things on the fly, and it frustrates the people that are building because now they got to change everything. And this is also kind of true of how we live our lives in the pursuit of pleasure. We think that we're going to have this lasting pleasure of the great big reveal in our career and relationships and in retirement for our kids. But we're impatient. And so as we're moving in the process, we don't only want to experience permanent future pleasure, but we want pleasure now in the process. And so we reroute things, we change things, we alter things to derive pleasure, to live this life of happiness that we all seek. And here in chapter 2, the Koheleth, the preacher, is going to speak about his journey looking for the great big reveals in his life, the finished product that would make him satisfied and would bring pleasure to his life. And as I already gave you the spoiler, he's going to say it was all vanity. So Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 1, here's what God's word says. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. He said that in, as he looked at his life, he said, I am going to test myself with pleasure. Last week, we spoke about how he was searching for meaning. He had a quest to discover meaning. And now he's looking for pleasure. And he is not going to devoid himself of any pursuit of pleasure. But the spoiler alert is that it was all a vapor. It was hevel. It was vain. In verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? See, he's, he's speaking about the pursuit of pleasure before he kind of explains what he did to pursue it. He says, pleasure and the pursuit of it is useless. In fact, it's maddening. Laughter and pleasure oftentimes connected. It's a maddening pursuit. It's a useless pursuit. But the preacher here, the Koheleth, being a good philosopher, wants you to walk and journey with him to see why he's arrived at this disposition, this feeling towards the pursuit of pleasure. And so he says in verse 3, here's the first thing he did to try to derive pleasure in his life as he was on this quest. Verse 3, I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven 
during the few days of their life. So he's saying, as I was seeking with wisdom, what would be good for people to do to find pleasure in finished product and in the moment while they're under the sun, while they're under heaven with the few days of their life, the first thing I did was I cheered my body with wine. It almost kind of says like, step one, I just turned up. I just started partying. But it's actually in the Hebrew, the original language, it's more complex. He's not simply saying that I I just drank a lot of wine and I got drunk on wine to experience pleasure. In fact, what it's alluding to here is that he became a connoisseur of wine, that he wanted to learn about wine and to appreciate wine. He's saying that the first pursuit of pleasure was in a hobby. It was in a personal passion of his. That as he began to learn how to to swirl and to smell and to sip and to taste the wine, and he learned about the grapes and the regions and the sun exposure of the year, that he thought that possibly in this passion for wine he might find pleasure. But it was a vapor, fleeting, temporary, not lasting. So he tries something else. Step two is in verse four through six. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought, we'll stop there. So he's saying here, the step two to pursue pleasure was in building. I built houses and vineyards and gardens, palaces. One of the most beautiful palaces that Solomon, who's the most likely author of Ecclesiastes, One of the most beautiful palaces that he built is called the Palace of the Forest. It was the entrance to the king's palace or the the king's area of the city. And he imported cedars from Lebanon, these massive and beautiful trees. I love the trees. In fact, I have a cedar of Lebanon tattooed on my arm. And he brought them for the entrance so that when you entered into the king's palace, it was like you were entering into this beautiful forest. He's saying, I tried to build paradise. I wanted to build paradise because I thought that once I was finished with the vineyards and with the gardens and with the palaces, that I would find pleasure. But it was all vanity. See, he's giving a warning here. He's warning us as he explains his life and the pursuits of his life. Don't think that you're going to find pleasure, lasting pleasure in your hobbies or in what you can build. We're so easily captivated by that thought, though, that once I'm able to afford this home, once I can live in this building, once I am able to retire with this amount of money and move to this place and build my dream home and sit on my porch and drink my coffee in the morning then I will find pleasure. Or even take it a step further, not only what we actually build or where we settle down and live comfortably, but also in what we build for the world. 
Once I innovate in my career, once I create this for my company or my field, once I bring this game-changing creation to the world, then I will find pleasure in what I build and what I attain. Actually, Solomon mentions that as well here when he talks about how he built water reservoirs to, to actually water the fields. Solomon is credited with actually creating this invention that the Romans expanded upon with the aqueducts. It was a game-changing innovation for the world. And he's saying that no matter what I built for myself to settle down in and to live comfortably, houses and vineyards and gardens, or what I built for the world, it was fleeting. Don't fall into the trap of thinking it will bring you pleasure. It will not. Then he goes on to step three. He tries something else, and this is in verse seven. He says, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. Now, step three, what he's talking about here is visible success. He's saying that his next pursuit of pleasure was in being successful, but to the degree that everyone could see it. And I want to say something about what he speaks about here when he says, I had male and female slaves. Because if you have a misconception about what he's saying, you're not going to hear anything else. So the servitude that, was, that took place during this time is very different from what many of us understand in terms of American slavery, the horror of American chattel, race-based slavery. It's different here. This is an indentured servitude uh, culture where the people are enslaved or they are slaves to a master or to a boss, really, as a contracted employee for a period of seven years. So you would work for this boss, this master, and you would work in the field or you would do different kind of tasks. As an employee, you'd be paid. It was expected that you were treated fairly. And then after seven years, you had the option to leave and go start your own field and get your own servants and essentially launch your own business. Or if you felt like you wanted to stay, you could become a bond servant and continue to serve with this stable income and comfortable living in this environment. It's very different from what we understand. In fact, I want you to hear this very clearly. The, the horror and the tragedy of chattel race-based slavery in America and the rest of the world the Bible speaks against. It's not what's happening here in Exodus chapter 21, verse 6. It says this, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Death sentences, those, as the book of Exodus speaks. The Apostle Paul lists slave traders as the, wor as the worst of sinners in the list. And so I want you to understand what he's saying here is that the people that he employed, they gave a sign and a symbol to people of how successful he was. Now, I'm not saying that the indentured servitude nature of Jerusalem and Israel at the time, it was free of oppression. Certainly not. 
nor am I saying it's ideal. I don't think that either. But I want you to hear so you don't have a misconception about the type of slavery that's being spoken about. So here, Solomon is saying that I became a symbol of success, that I sought visible success. Everybody could see how many people I had employed. They could see all of the herds that I had and all of the success in my life, and it brought me nothing. It was fleeting pleasure. It was not lasting at all. Another trap for us, right, in our pursuit of pleasure, thinking once I am able to build my company, once I'm able to reach this place in my field, once I'm able to accumulate all of these resources, once people look at me and say, I want to work for that person, once they say, I want to be mentored by that person, once I have that visible success and I become a symbol of success, then I will finally be happy with that finished product in my life. The Koheleth, the preacher, Solomon himself says, don't fall into that. And Solomon would know because he was the Jeff Bezos of his time. He had everything. There was no one who could compare to him in terms of his success. It was a vapor. So he tries another route, step four in verse eight, the very beginning part. He said, I gathered for myself silver and gold and treasures of kings and provinces. Step four is money. Is that I, I also just accumulated a lot of money. I had so much money, I didn't know what to do with it all. And it was fleeting. It was a vapor. Now, this is one that I, I think culturally we generally accept that money cannot buy you happiness. Or money cannot buy you pleasure. But isn't it interesting that though we may believe that and though we may say that, we don't necessarily always feel that way. Here, here's an, an example. I want you to imagine that tomorrow your salary doubles. Do you think it will make you happier? Will it bring you the pleasure you seek? You may say no, but do you feel like the answer is no? I mean, it kind of feels like, yeah. He's saying it's not lasting. It's temporary. It's fleeting. So the last thing he tries is in the second half of verse 8. He says, I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. The last thing he goes to is really the mo one of the most basic desires that's the sexual desire. He sought after sexual delight. He speaks here about concubines, which their job was to provide sexual pleasure. They were almost a, a type of escort. He says, I had many concubines or escorts. He speaks even here about how he doesn't need to go to a concert because he has singers to provide the ambiance and the environment that he wants for him to have endless partners and have this, this arena of sexual delight. He speaks about it by saying that it was the delight of the sons of man, that people saw his sexual lifestyle and envied it. And he says it's fleeting. It provides nothing. He sums up the journey of his life in verse 9 through 10. 
he says, so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I tried everything. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. It's so important to see what he's saying here. He's saying, I tried everything. I, I kept my heart from nothing. I kept my eyes from nothing. And he says at the very beginning that it was all useless. It was vain. It was a vapor. But he identifies something that is so helpful for us to, to hear. And that is that it was not a miserable journey. He says here that the reward for all of his toil was that he experienced pleasure in these fleeting vapors, in sexual delight and in the money he accumulated and what he was able to build and the visible success and recognition he received and in the hobbies that he pursued. He experienced pleasure, but it wasn't lasting. It didn't fill him. And, and see, this is the tension and the struggle of life that we experience pleasure as we pursue all of these different paths. And, and the pleasure that we experience oftentimes is intoxicating. We want more of it. And we somehow think that there'll be a big reveal later where we'll see the finished product of our pursuits and we'll finally have lasting pleasure. And he says, you will not. You will only experience temporary pleasure in the process. And that's why life can be so frustrating because it's just momentary pleasure, not lasting pleasure. It's microwaved. So he says in verse 11, as I read at the very beginning, then I considered all that my hands had done and all the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. And herein lies the paradox. Herein lies the paradox. Something pleasurable in life cannot ultimately provide pleasure. That, that's what he's saying. It's the paradox of pursuing pleasure in all of these different arenas and many others. You will experience in the toil and in the journey these moments of intoxicating pleasure, but it will not provide you what you are looking for. You will end up feeling like it was all a waste and there's nothing to be gained. Albert Camus, who was a French philosopher, a nihilist, would certainly resonate with everything that the Koheleth, the preacher, is saying here. He has this quote, he says, a man wants to earn money in order to be happy. And his whole effort and the best of a life are devoted to the earning of that money. Happiness is forgotten. The means are taken for the end. Speaking about chasing after the wind. Running after fleeting things like money. And what you forfeit in the process is pleasure itself, is happiness. You take the means for the end. So the question is, what now? What do you do? How do you respond to this? 
Well, in chapter 3, the preacher gives the answer as he works through this. He says in verse 10 through 11, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. That God has placed eternity in your heart, but you cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You cannot see the end, and you didn't see the beginning. But eternity is placed within your heart. You know, one of the most frustrating experiences in life is being in traffic. And you know that all too well living in Miami. You know, I, I I can visibly see myself driving down the highway. In my mind, I can imagine driving down 95 or the turnpike, listening to music, feeling good, happy. And if I look ahead and I see red lights stacked up, my emotions change immediately. I mean, I become a different person. Uh, and then when I stop and it's gridlock, maybe you do what I do. You, you, pe- you turn your car a little bit, you swerve a little bit around the car to see if you can see how far is the traffic jam. You pull up Google Maps, you look, and you see, and you're like, oh no, it's miles. It's miles. What's going on? It, it, be- it begins to, to work at me. It affects me. Why does it affect me? And maybe you resonate with this too. Because you cannot see when it ends. You see, it's way easier to be in traffic when you can see that you're about to be out of it. That it's just a little ways ahead and then you'll be free and back on your way. Then you can kind of settle back in. Okay, it's going to be a little bit longer than expected, but we're going to be out of it. But when you can't see, oh man. It is so incredibly frustrating. So this is what the the preacher is saying. That God has placed eternity within your heart. And yet you cannot see the end. And so the frustration of life so many times is that we're driving and everything's going great. We're feeling good. We're listening to music. We're moving forward. And all of a sudden we see red lights. It's gridlock. It's traffic. And we can't see the end, and we begin to panic. We begin to get frustrated. We get down, and we start to think, I don't know, what do I do? I I, I don't know when it's going to end. Maybe I should take the emergency lane. Hopefully there's no cops ahead that are going to pull me over. I'll face consequences for trying to take a shortcut. Is there an exit that I can get off and I can reroute? See, the journey of our life as we experience different seasons, right, Seasons where we're driving and we're moving forward and we're happy and then seasons of gridlock and frustration and anger and anxiety. And what we want to do is we want to try to get out of that because we want to see the end, but we can't because we don't control the traffic. God has placed this eternity in your heart to want to know the end, to want to see the end, but it's hidden from us. God's plan, but it's hidden. So what do we do? What do we do while we wait? Verse 12 and 13. I perceived, I perceived that there is nothing better for them to do to be joyful and do good as long as they live 
Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That is God's gift to man. The answer is to enjoy God's gifts now. No matter what season you're in, you're driving, you're moving forward, you're in gridlock, you're in traffic. Enjoy the gifts that God has provided you now. And it doesn't mean to pretend like you're in a a joyful season when you're not. It doesn't mean to paint on a smile even though you're frustrated and angry and anxious and down, full of sorrow. It doesn't mean to pretend. But it does mean to pursue joy. It means to be joyful while living fully present. To be joyful while living fully present. You see, joy, first off, joy is not happiness. They are different. Joy is deep pleasure that is sustained. Joy is your heart's disposition. It is not your emotional reaction to pleasurable experiences. That's what happiness is. Joy is your heart's disposition. It is sustained. And living fully present means stop trying to skip ahead when you know you don't control the traffic. Trust. Trust that there is joy in the season that you are in. It does not mean, again, to pretend like you're in a season that's full of happiness and pleasure when you're in gridlock and you're in traffic. But it does mean to believe that there is joy in your season. As the preacher says, to enjoy, that literally means to take joy. To live fully present is not to pretend that all is joyful. But it does mean to pursue joyfulness. Because there is a time for everything. He says that here in the very beginning of of chapter 3. Just read a few verses. He says, there's a time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down, a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. And so on and so on. There is a time for everything. There are different seasons of life. You see, your life is a kaleidoscope of seasons. Different times and different seasons. And what is true whether or not you see it or you found it, that there is joy in every season. There are gifts given to you by God for each season. Because everything contributes to the masterpiece that God is doing in your life. The masterpiece that He is doing in your life as He is the one that controls and oversees the traffic. And He is the one that is moving you in and out of seasons. You see, if you are someone that has experienced the knowledge of God, that you know that God has put eternity in your heart and you have surrendered to the one who has placed it there, God himself, then I want to tell you something. No matter what season you're in, your life is a miracle. It's a miracle. You may be in gridlock. You may be on cruise control. It does not matter what season or time you are in. Your life 
is a miracle. A miracle is a surprising, unexpected turn of events. And your life is on this unexpected, surprising journey to eternity where your joy will be complete and pleasure will be permanent. And God is writing that story in you. And there is joy available even in the moments of frustration and anger and sadness and gridlock. You don't have to pretend that all is well, but there is joy to be found. You see, the frustration for us is that we have a hard time seeing it because we just want to see the end. We have a hard time being fully present. We're frustratingly nearsighted. We try to look ahead and everything begins to blur. And so what happens for us is one of two things, depending upon where you are. If you're a person who has not surrendered to the God who placed eternity within your heart, if you're not a person of faith, then probably here is how you pursue life. You think to yourself, I, I feel the void within my soul. I feel the void around me in life. So I, I don't know the answer. So in order for me to find pleasure and experience happiness and pursue joy, I'm going to just try to make the most out of life to the best of my ability. I'm going to try to figure that out for myself. I'm going to essentially try to be God for myself. M. Scott Peck says in A Road Less Traveled the following. He says, as soon as we believe that it is possible for a man to become God, we can never really rest for long. Never say, okay, my job is done. We must constantly push ourselves to greater and greater wisdom, greater and greater effectiveness. By this belief, we will have trapped ourselves, at least until death, on an effortful treadmill of self-improvement and spiritual growth. God's responsibly, responsibility must be our own. Isn't that how so many live? Maybe you've been living that way on a treadmill of self-actualization and self-improvement. Trying to be God for yourself, to derive pleasure in all of these things that you think will provide them, but they're just vapors. They're fleeting. And the preacher of our culture says this, that within you, there's a secret switch. It's a pleasure, a pleasure switch. Within you is this secret switch, and if you unlock it, if you figure out how to flip it, then you'll, your life will be great. You'll experience joy and lasting pleasure. So you just got to try this and try that and read this and read that and practice this method and attend this seminar. Try all these things to flip the switch. What a burdensome life. Because it will never flip. It will be fleeting it will be temporary pleasure here and there. Vapors. And what inevitably happens is that over time, the void in your life will become oppressive and it will become terrifying and you will feel like everything you are pursuing is simply just passing time. There's no real joy. No lasting pleasure. But if you are a person of faith, your life, is not passing time. Your life echoes in eternity 
because God is writing your story and nothing God does is in vain. Your life is a miracle. And so there is joy that regardless of the season that you are in for you to pursue, for your heart to be inclined towards. And here is the beauty of where you and I sit. We have a better vantage point than Solomon, the Koheleth, the preacher here in Ecclesiastes. We don't only know that God has placed eternity within our heart so that we might trust his plan and pursue joy in the midst of life. We have the vantage point of being on the other side of the cross where we see the embodiment of God's plan in his son, Jesus Christ. The embodiment of God's plan. And so as you walk through life, and as you carry burdens, and as you hope maybe that one day the big reveal in your career, your relationships, or in your retirement is going to provide you pleasure, and you're tempted to follow that track, you have the vantage point of the cross to say, I don't have to fall into believing that those things are going to ultimately satisfy me. I know they will not. They are temporary fleeting vapors. And I also don't have to carry the burdens because Christ has received and he takes my burden upon his shoulders and he paid for it on the cross for me. I can hand it over and I can now trust in faith that God is writing my story and that there are gifts that he presents before me that I can pursue to find joy even when I'm in gridlock. See, Psalm 16 says this. I love this verse. I want to encourage you to memorize it. I've been working on it this week myself. It says, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. You see, how do you pursue joy by living fully present? How do you embark on this quest for pleasure? You seek the presence of God. And when you seek the presence of God by surrendering to the very God who placed eternity within your heart, seeing that Christ has opened up the door for you to come to God's presence through belief in his death and resurrection, you will see that God will show you the way and he will provide you the joy and the pleasure you seek. It will not be found in the fleeting vapors of life. It will be only found in God himself. Pursue him and seek his presence this week. Will you pray with me? God, I confess alongside my brothers and sisters who may feel similar that I'm tempted to pursue the fleeting vapors of life for pleasure. And that I become intoxicated with these moments of pleasure, convincing myself that maybe they will provide lasting pleasure if I develop and expand upon them more. Help me to see the folly of that. Help me to recognize that the only place where true, permanent pleasure is found, where joy is attained, is in your presence. May I seek your presence this week, knowing that you will guide me on the way of life and provide that deep pleasure that I seek 
And that through surrender at the cross, the void of my life is extinguished. And the burdens of my life I can place upon you because you have taken them with you to the grave, but you have come back alive. So that I might see my life resurrected in the midst of gridlock too. Would I trust you in each and every season? And I pray that over everyone now, engaging with your word as we pray together, that we'd surrender to you and trust you and enjoy you in every season. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.